Welcome to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and happy to share this episode with you today. Consider this episode a little lanyap, as they like to say in Southern Louisiana. This is a bonus episode. On March 23rd, 2019, I gave a presentation on discerning the celibate priesthood to seminarians at Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona, Minnesota. Thanks to Father Marty Schaefer and the rector, Father Robert Horahan, who invited me to lead their Veer and Crystal weekends this academic year. That is a name they give to their retreat weekends focused on human formation. The theme for this year was on masculinity, and this presentation is how celibacy is an authentic expression of their sexuality. It was my fifth lecture over the course of the two weekends, but it stands alone and barely draws on the previous four presentations, which is why I'm sharing it on the podcast. In this lecture, I hit hard on the beauty and challenge of discerning the celibate vocation. I reflect on Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel about the purpose of celibacy. I talk about the complementarity of the celibate life and married life. I draw distinctions between abstinence, chastity, and celibacy. I encourage the men to be honest with their hearts and feelings, urging them to develop a real friendship with Jesus and each other. And I end with a warning of what happens when celibacy is motivated by something other than love. While this is a talk specifically geared to seminarians, I believe it will bless anyone who wants to better understand the importance of the celibate vocation, especially in this time of church scandal. When the show is done, please subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with anyone who could use it. Okay, here we go. Let's talk about celibacy. So the theme of the two weekends, of course, has been masculinity and how to live that, um, fatherhood being an expression of that, and virtues and what threats against it, pornography, lust. But what we really want to talk about for this lecture now is how celibacy can be a healthy expression of your masculine sexuality. In, in, in a, and if God is calling you towards that, then how should celibacy be that? Well, what we need to talk about is what is celibacy? Often when, when the discussion centers around celibacy, it's, it's often defined by what it is not. That what it is not is not having a spouse, not having sex, not having children, and giving that up. Now, of course, that's, part of it, but only defining celibacy in the negative by what it is not does a real disservice to the commitment that you're being invited to make. It doesn't sound very heroic when it's always like what you're, what you're giving up as opposed to what you're trying to attain. So it's more than just that. Um, equally, I think sometimes we define celibacy or why the priesthood is, is, it calls its men from, from celibacy is out of like for practical matters. Where, uh, well, you know, at least you don't have a wife and kids. And so, you know, you can be more available to people for those 2 a.m. calls to the hospital. Or uh, you can work till 9 o'clock at night seeing couples because you don't have to worry about having kids. Or you can be free to move wherever you need to be. And again, there's something true to that or truth about that. But in and of itself, the practical dimension doesn't fully give the, 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 the full substance of what it means to be a celibate. Um, because if that's the case, it's almost like, well, you know, like, hey, can't have sex, but at least you can be available for bingo Friday night, you know? Like, <laughs> sign me up, yeah. <laughs> it's almost the same thing, you know? Like, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> 
so <laughs> what is celibacy then is the question. What is the Lord? Why does the Lord invite uh, certain men and women to, to live that particular charism? Well, the answer is in scripture. All right. So we're going to read uh, two verses from a Matthew's gospel that I think really kind of give us a language that, that really kind of captures what we're talking about with celibacy. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, it's Matthew 22 is the first I'm going to read. Uh, Verses 23 through 30. On that day, the Sadducees approached him saying that there is no resurrection. They put this question to him saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up descendants for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and had no descendants left his wife to his brother. The same happened with the second and the third through all seven. Finally, the woman died. Now at the resurrection of the seven, whose wife will she be? And of course, you know, they're, they're not really asking the question. They're just kind of trying to trip them up. Um, for they all had been married to her. So Jesus replies, it's really beautiful. He says, you are misled because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Okay, that last phrase, we're going to hold on to that. At the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So hold that thought right there. Okay, so then let's go to the second verse, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Again, this time it's the Pharisees coming to test him. When Jesus finished these words, he left Galilee and went to the district of Judea across the Jordan. Great crowds followed him and he cured them. Some Pharisees approached him and tested him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, whatever? He said in reply, have you not read that from the beginning, the creator made them male and female? He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, no human being must separate. They said to him, then why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? He said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful and marries another, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, you know, it's like, geez, hey, if this is the case of a man with a wife, it's better not to even get married. <laughs> like, That's the bar. Dude, let's not even mess around with it. Right. But Jesus knows that and he speaks right to it, right to his disciples. He says, not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. And this is the key with celibacy. Some are incapable of marriage because they were born so. Some because they were made so by others. And here we go. But some because they have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to. The two lines that are takeaways from from this passage. The first is that at the resurrection, they will neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And the second one is, that some are called to renounce marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom of God. So celibacy for the sake of the kingdom and thinking about marriage, not um, they're neither married nor given in marriage in, in, in heaven. Okay. So let's kind of break this apart. 
In both of these passages, what we see Jesus doing is first and foremost, before we even talk about celibacy, what Jesus is doing is he's raising the bar of marriage. He's raising it to the sacramental order in this conversation. No longer is it just a natural call, but now it's, it's a sacramental call, an invitation by couples to, to image God. And so it is a great good that marriage is raised to this sacramental, to this holy level of matrimony. But as good as marriage is, he's very clear to say that marriage is only made for earth. Marriage is only a mystery that ends here. What do couples say when they exchange their vows? Till what do us part? Till death do us part. And when a man dies, is his wife free to remarry? Yes. When a woman dies, is the marriage over and the husband is free to remarry somebody else? Yes. The image, the sacrament, exists here on earth to be an icon, to be an image, um, a window of, of something greater. But that something greater is not marriage itself. It's something else. So when marriage dies, if we are neither given or received to marry in heaven, what type of love then are we invited to in heaven? If marital love is the fullness of natural human love here on earth, what type of love are we going to be invited to in heaven? Celibate love. Celibacy is the answer. Celibacy is the type of love that God is inviting all of us to, all of us to. I heard a priest say this one time. He said, it's not so much if we are called to celibacy, but when, when. Think about it. If marriage was all there was, if that was the pinnacle of love, of existence, and that's it, then we would be without hope because it ends with death. And if it ends, then what then? What after that? There's gotta be something more. There's got to be another level to that. There's got to be something more beyond that reach. And that's the gift of what celibacy is. It's, it's a reminder that there is something more. As good as marriage is, there's still something more that we're being invited to. And so here on earth, would it not stand to reason then that God would invite some to begin living that eternal reality here on earth? And that is what you are discerning. So far more than just giving up sex, far more than just being available for bingo on Friday nights, you are invited to be an eschatological witness to the world. That's the term that John Paul II uses in his Theology of the Body when speaking about celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. An eschatological witness. What's the eschaton? The final, the final times. The eschaton, eschatology is the, is the theology of the final times, the last things, the resurrection, heaven, the glory of God, the eschaton, the celibate is an eschatological witness that reminds the world that there is something more. As good as earth is, as good as marriage is, as good as the natural order is, which are very good and God says they're good. We're not Pelagian. We're not, we're not, we're not um, Manichaean, I should say. Excuse me, let me get my heresies right. You know, we're, 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 there's not this duality between the two, right? There is a goodness that's there. But even as good as that is, there's still something more. And those of you who are invited to that are a reminder to us that there is something more. And there has to then be this complementarity between the vocations. There should be a gift. One serves and blesses the other as one serves and blesses the other. So how does celibacy bless me as, as a married man? Well, just that, a reminder that 
even as good as the love that I had between my wife, by somebody choosing a life of detachment, by someone choosing to say, I want to go and give my life completely to the Lord to try to enter into this relationship with depth and intimacy. It's a reminder to me that as good as this is, this is not an idol. This is just a sign. And there has to be something more. And I'm grateful for what that is. So I'm grateful for the celibates and the witness that they serve to me to remind me that that's ultimately my final calling. What good does marriage end to, to celibacy? Not just in be a priest or make a priest. That's the wrong type of answer to it. It's something more than that. Marriage is an analogy. Of all the analogies that there are in scripture, they all fall apart at some point. You know, the vine and the branches. I mean, you pick them, any, any of them. At some point, they all fall apart. The least inadequate of all the analogies used in scripture is the spousal analogy. Why? When you think of what real marital love is, it is a mutual respect, a mutual love, a mutual exchange of persons. That's what you're committing to in marriage. Mutually giving myself in my entirety to another person to be received and loved. And for that person then to mutually give themselves entirely to me to, to receive the fullness of who they are. This is what we're striving for in holy matrimony. Think of this then as an analogy, right? Not that God wants to marry us, but as an analogy, something that points us to the type of mature love that God invites us to. So what marriage gives to the celibate is a, is a language, is an image of that type of mature receiving an exchange of persons that God is inviting all of us to. The spiritual life is a mature love that unfolds as we go, as we go through life. God does not desire uh, a codependent relationship where, we, where, where we're just... Um, like he's just like some puppeteer, you know, kind of guiding us along and we have no free will. And he's just like pulling the strings and orchestrating. No, no, no. No, he wants us to be real men and real women that fully understand the fullness of who I am and that my will then comes into conformity with his will. And that's the classic definition of holiness. When my will conforms to God's will, but that my engagement of my will requires everything we were talking about earlier, an understanding of myself, who I am, my desires, my falls, my, my temptations, what I'm supposed to do, but then actually engagement with that. And as I engage and, and I give myself entirely to God, it almost is, again, not that it, it, it isn't this, but it gives a window towards it that it's almost spousal in the sense that I am trying as a person to understand the fullness of who I am, to give myself completely to the person of God. See, Jesus has already given the fullness of himself to us when he did that. When he died on the cross and poured himself out and revealed himself for all the time of eternity to be the second person in the Trinity. That's the moment he revealed himself to be the, the eternal son of the father. Right there. Pouring out the father's love through him, given completely to him, poured out through his blood and his side, through his sacred heart, so that all of us can receive it. It's on us to then reciprocate that, to give the fullness of our personality back to him. That's the life of the Christian, is that I'm giving the fullness of myself back to God. And it's almost, again, 
Don't, don't, I'm not a heretic, I promise you. So don't, don't confuse what I'm saying. It's not that God wants to marry you, but that that marriage, that love, it's so important that we get this right, is mature. It's mature. And it requires sacrifice. And it requires commitment. And it requires perseverance. And that it requires setting things in order so that I can give myself. The celibate says, I choose to forego the natural goods of marriage to more intensely commit myself to this process. And then by doing so, I reiterate to then be a witness to married couples, to lay people, to all that God is bigger than all of creation. That God is more and stands above time for, for um, that stands above everything else and outside of time to, to then be that witness. And that is hope. It's a, it's a virtue. It's a, excuse me, it's a charism that's anchored in hope. I mean, it'd be really like a set. It'd be really, be really like a mean. I don't know what else to word to say if this whole thing wasn't true. Wow. You gave up a life of, of, of companionship and you gave up a life of intimacy for what in the end? For nothing? No, man, our faith guides us. We got to believe it. No, no, you do it because there's meaning and purpose behind it. And you do it because, because you believe that the promises are real. We believe that the stories are real. And we believe it not just because somebody told us, but because we actually engaged with it. And we know who Jesus is deep inside of our hearts. And if you don't know who Jesus is, brothers, then get to know him. I don't care if you're a seminarian. If you don't know who Jesus is, get to know him inside of your heart. So that you can give of yourself completely to him because he's already given himself completely to you. So let's keep going. I'm going to lay out a couple words here that I think often get confused with celibacy. And we're just going to kind of, kind of lay all these out here just so we can kind of spend time actually talking about it. So the first one is abstinence. The second one is chastity. And then we finally get celibacy. If we think of it in kind of an order, abstinence is the behavior. Abstinence is the not having sex. That's abstinence. Abstinence is just a behavior of, of not having sex. But you can abstain without actually cultivating the virtue of chastity. Chastity then becomes a virtue. Celibacy becomes a charism. The charism of celibacy, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit given to you given to those who, who call for celibacy, who live the life of celibacy, that builds upon the virtue of chastity, which builds upon the practice of abstinence. But celibacy, at the end of the day, is a gift. It's a charism. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. You see, think of abstinence. You can white-knuckle it. You can... You can um, Ignore it. You can cut off or put all the filters to do everything you're supposed to do to not look at porn, to not fall, to not have sex or whatever, all of that. But then what ends up happening is that you can abstain. And I'll just speak here with stories that I've heard. You're really good at abstaining maybe here in the seminary because you got all the systems in place. But then you go home where all the filters are not there anymore. And then what happens? You fall. Are you really cultivating the virtue of chastity then? The answer is no. 
You're just able to abstain for certain periods of time, but you're not actually cultivating chastity. Then how then could celibacy build upon that if you're not living a chaste life? The question often is like, specifically when it comes to like pornography or masturbation, like when, when should you start discerning out? Okay. Like at what point do, is, is it, is it, is it, is it like that it's not enough? It's, you're not, you're not making enough progress or whatever. Honestly, like for me, my estimation is if you don't have like real freedom, by the time you're getting to third theology, by the end of second theology, that summer, if you're not really at a point where you have real freedom, and when you get into third theology, you're going to have a canonical interview. And the rector is going to ask you, can you live the promises that you're about to undertake? And he's going to ask you if you can live the virtue of chastity. Can you be chaste? And if you can't look him in the eye and answer the question sincerely, yes, then brothers, what are you doing? I don't want you to be a liar. I don't want that. You don't want that. The church doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. So now's the time, if you're struggling with this issue, to get real serious about making progress there. So that when the gift is given, it falls on fertile soil. And it doesn't fall on rocky ground with thorns and thistles. But it falls on something that actually can produce fruit. Because our sexuality isn't about us. I've said this the whole time. I'm going to say it again. Our sexuality is about fecundity. It's about gift. It's about life. It's about blessing others. We need this. We need that word. We need that virtue. We need to be able to do that. In the theology of the body, um, John Paul II says a few things here, and I'm going to quote just a few passages. He says that chastity, speaking of this virtue here, means living in the order of the heart. That's, if you want to be real technical here, it's theology of the body, uh, address 131, first paragraph, if you want to go back to this. Chastity means living in the order of the heart. He goes on to say, then in, in Address 57, so going back here, he goes, Purity is the glory of the human body before God. It is the glory of God in the human body through which masculinity and femininity are manifested, men and women. From purity springs that singular beauty that permeates every sphere of reciprocal common life between human beings and allows them to express it in the simplicity and depth, the cordiality and unrepeatable authenticity of personal trust. It's a mouthful. JP2 has a lot of mouthfuls in the theology of the body. But what's he seeing? He's saying, if we have cultivated chastity, what we are doing is that we have come to a real peace with our sexual desire. And why is that important? Why does that lead to purity? Because of all the desires, I would say, that's the one that's probably the most intimate to our being. It's the most um, fundamental of who we are as persons. And if we can get that right, if I can understand what's lust and what's love, then when I can sift through that and I can know when I'm operating out of love and giving myself out of love, well, then all the other desires hopefully can kind of get into some order. My desire for um, Facebook, social media, my desire for cars and material things, my desire for power and hunger, right? It all starts with this more base desire of lust and gluttony. Look at the orders of the vices. I don't have time to write it all, but the, the more fleshy ones are there. If we can get that ordered, then we can start building upon that. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
Because of what? Because they will see God. That's Jesus who says that. Blessed are the pure heart because they will see God. If I can separate, if I can put lust over here and try to live at least 90% of the time, not 100, 90, 85% of the time out of love, man, now we're blessing. Now we're doing what he's saying here. Purity is the glory of the human body before God. If I'm living out of purity, pure chastity, I'm giving myself, my desires are in line with what? With God. And then what does this do? It blesses men and women. Cordiality, simplicity, depth, respect, authenticity, all the things that Father was talking about earlier, asking how does men and women supposed to act? They're supposed to love one another. That's what we're supposed to do. The masculine and the feminine are supposed to be in harmony. But you got to know your heart to know when you're actually loving and when you're falling into lust. That takes time. That takes practice. Do the hard work. Please do it. Because if you can live in chastity, then you're living in accordance with the goodness of your heart. God wants you to live a happy life. And the way you do that is by pursuing the good things. So think about this then in marriage, okay? So chastity, you chastity being the, then the virtue of a properly ordered sexual desire. We can say it that clearly. That would have saved me 10 minutes, but you know, I kind of wanted to talk for a little bit. Anyways, <laughs> so chastity then is a properly ordered sexual desire. Think about it in marriage. If a man and a woman are both living chastity, wow, now you have something beautiful in the bedroom and outside the bedroom because they're being chaste with one another. They're being pure with one another. They're being loving and complete with one another. They're living in accordance with the desires of their heart towards one another. Chastity is a virtue that married couples need to cultivate as well. But for those who are then called to celibacy, the gift falls on fertile soil. Wow, now think of that, huh? The celibate who lives a chaste and pure heart is able to then give of himself in freedom, in love, without reservation, not just to one person, a bride, but to a whole community, your parish. Brothers, we're on holy ground here, I'm telling you. Anytime we talk about this stuff, with great reverence, with great reverence do we talk about our sexuality. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. St. Francis of Sales says that chastity is the lily of virtues and makes men almost equal to angels. Jesus. Jesus. It's heavy stuff, man. It's awesome, though. But that's what we want. We want heaven. We want glory. We want the goodness. We want to know, like, am I choosing what God wants me to do? That's it. So why then does the Latin church primarily call her men from those who have discerned celibacy? So you're actually doing two discernments right now, in case you didn't know that. One is, Am I called to live a celibate, chaste life? And the second one is, am I called to be a priest of Jesus Christ? They're connected, certainly, but they're also distinct. You can be a celibate and be a religious brother. You can be a celibate and live a monastic vocation and give of yourself completely in living in accordance with that. You can do that and not be a priest. Praise God if that's your vocation, because then that's your path of holiness, that's your path to happiness, and that's great. Do it. Embrace that. 
You can also do ministry type things without being celibate. A number of lay ministry opportunities in the church. If you want to work in the church, give of yourself in the church, serve the apostolate some capacity, you can do that. Not be a priest, obviously, but you can still serve in ministerial aspects. Why then does the church still maintain mandatory celibacy? With some exceptions, obviously, if a man is uh, Anglican or, or Episcopal and ordained in, in that ministry, then he can, the church is not asking him to renounce his marriage if he converts and wants to serve as a Catholic priest. In the Eastern church, um, they are still allowed to get married prior to ordination. So why in the Latin church do we uphold this? Precisely because of everything we've been talking about. If holy orders is a sacrament, and a sacrament that is the sacrament that allows the other sacraments to exist, if holy orders is, is the, the preaching mission specifically of Christ, of being able to act in persona Christi when you are saying mass, man, what an awesome gift. To be able to be in the persona of Jesus, to forgive people of their sins, that power is not yours. That power is not the priest. That power is Jesus alone that flows through the priest that he can say those words to a person. So if you have this sacramental witness tied to the eschatological witness that we were just talking about, now we really see with clarity what the church is asking of you gentlemen in your discernment. You are witnessing both to the reality of Jesus and his love to love as he does in a sacramental and holy way, but then even more so, well, not more so, certainly not, together with that, to be able to, to offer a reminder that, that the good things in life aren't the end, that there's still something more. So the eschatological witness, the witness of the final, complete human love that God is inviting us to, to the fullness of divine love, together with that sacramental witness here is, is the combination, is, it's like a one-two punch, right, that the church is asking and inviting and a one-two punch witness towards the world to say that Jesus is real. He is present here through the sacrament, the physical sign of an invisible reality, an efficacious sign of God's grace, together with the larger call of detachment, of love, of goodness, of eternity, trying to manifest and, and be witness to that here on earth. So much more than bingo on Friday nights. <laughs> so much more. Because when you get that in order, then, now, everything kind of flows out of that. The calls at 2 o'clock in the morning, morning are a manifestation of your fatherhood. Balancing the budgets, as I was saying earlier, are a manifestation of your fatherhood. Those things aren't, don't define your priesthood in and of themselves, but they are expressions of that. They are gifts that you can give. That is what the church is calling, man. That's it. So you need to be able to discern that well because it's lofty and it's high. So celibacy, I like to think of it this way, is a, is a high reward yet a high risk enterprise. High risk, high reward. Why? Well, great question. <laughs> the pursuit of holiness never comes never comes without sacrifice. Never comes without sacrifice. I don't care what state of life you're called to. Married, monastic, priestly, 
secular priesthood, religious priesthood, I don't care what you're called to. Your path to holiness will never come without some real sacrifice. And so if, and if it, can go, it can go off rails in a, in a couple different ways. Well, I'll just say this. I mean, before we go off rails. If, if you have then have really sacrificed and in, 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 in been invited to live a life of celibacy, well then, what then do you do with those natural desires that are there? Because it's not like, you know, it's not like they go away. It's not like this charism kind of falls upon you and all of a sudden your libido just goes magically away. It's like, oh, <laughs> goodbye libido. I'm glad you're gone. <laughs> that doesn't happen on the, the day of your ordination. All right. Sorry to burst your bubble if that's what you guys are hoping for. It, it doesn't. Your humanity isn't uh, uh, taken away from you. That desire is still going to be there. So what do you do with that? Well, one, you have to recognize that the longing for spousal, real spousal love is good. There's nothing wrong with you. You're, you're going to fall in love with a girl. It's going to happen. You're probably going to fall in love with a lot of girls over the course of your priesthood. It's going to happen. It's okay. You know, I've been married for 16 years and and believe me, even as a married man, there's been other girls that have come my way. And I'm like, ooh, okay, we can't get coffee. You know, like we're not going to hang out. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen here. All right? But that desire, thinking about celibacy, those things are going to happen. And what do you do in those moments? Or is, that, is that when the whole discernment comes crashing down? And you say, well, maybe it's been a mistake. This is what I've needed this whole time. I don't know. I hope that you've, that you've done your discernment well. See, now in this stage, you should be asking the questions that I was kind of presenting a little bit earlier. Do you have real affective movement towards the life of a priest? Is there something beautiful in that life that really captures your imagination, that really draws you to want to live that life? Or are you only here because you think this is the only way to be a saint? Well, it's the highest thing, so it must be the thing that I have to do. And I need to white knuckle it. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. Because God always wants the toughest thing. Priesthood the toughest thing. That's what I'm supposed to do. Man, done. You will burn yourself out in a couple years. I'm telling you, that isn't enough. There has to be real desire in your heart. You're captured by the beauty of the priestly life. You desire to give, to listen to, 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 to serve people. So when you have that, and you've done your discernment well... You hold on to those memories because then when the time comes that you fall in love and it may not even be temptation. It's not the devil. The devil isn't always in that. Sometimes God sets these things up, not because he's cruel, because he comes back to test us and to remind us of the deepening of the call. So you fall in love a few years in. What do you do then? Do you abandon all your discernment for the 15 years prior to? Or do you hold on to that and say, no, like that's good. But man, I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling, Lord. <laughs> Come, Jesus. You invite him into that place of poverty inside of you. And this happens. I, I kind of refer to this as the sting of celibacy. There's an ache that emerges there. Remind yourself of your discernment. Hold on to your memories. Trust that you discern well. And that God isn't being cruel by bringing this person before you, but that there is a, an opportunity for you to grow deeper in your commitment, in your vow, in your promise that you made. To love celibate. 
Because just to engage then sexually with a woman isn't really love. The ramifications are, are far more than just you and her. If I was to go and have sex with a woman that isn't my wife, the, the people who are affected by that aren't just the two of us. My wife is. My children are. My community is. My job's at stake. All of it. So it couldn't be love. That's why the intellect has to be in control of the desires. Even though I may have a lot of affection for somebody, I may be infatuated with somebody, it's not love because it's not in conformity with the good of the life that God has called me to. So I offer that as a sacrifice to God and my invitation to you when this day comes that you do the same. And that day may come even before your ordination. It may. And at that point, you have a real discernment to do. And it's okay, one way or the other, but you have to do some real discernment in that. What are you going to choose? Which path is God calling you on? Sometimes, and it's hard, and I can't tell you in a talk which way to go, one way or the other. This is why you need a good spiritual director who's walked with you and who loves you and who can really discern with you. Because in some cases, it's that I haven't really been happy as a seminarian. I haven't really enjoyed the life. And now I've fallen in love, and this is clearly what I think the affective movement of my heart is more towards. And so I'm falling in love with a woman. Or it could be the opposite, which is I deeply love the life of being a seminarian. I'm deeply committed to my vocation, my future vocation as a priest. But now that I've fallen in love, what must I do? I must offer that. And a priest friend of mine said this. He said that often it comes where men do fall in love with women. Because then the sacrifice isn't just some abstract notion, I'm sacrificing marriage abstractly, I'm sacrificing children abstractly. No, no, I am sacrificing marriage to her specifically. That's the offering. And it's heavy. But if God is calling you to that, then with grace, do it. Not just to be a man, but because there's goodness in the offering that emerges that is going to bring purity to your heart, that is ultimately going to make you the better priest because of it. So the sing of celibacy comes, and that often is okay. The high-risk, high-reward venture of being a celibate priest, though, is with respect sometimes in diocesan priesthood that you are by yourself. And you go from an environment called the seminary, which is high scrutiny, with respect, again, I've been in the seminary. I understand that there's evaluations every year. You're meeting with your formator regularly. You're meeting with your vocations director and your spiritual director as you should. But then what tends to happen is that you get ordained and it's like, peace out. We'll see you in a few years. Have fun. And you go from this environment that is checking on you all the time, which is in many cases good. You need that accountability. You want that check-in. And then you're out on your own. You're like, oh, well, I don't even like my pastor. <laughs> The guy I'm supposed to be, that's supposed to be mentoring me in this venture called my, my young priesthood. He's by himself, and I'm now, now what do I do? Where's the accountability in that? We still need those, those kind of relationships. See, accountability isn't just punitive. It's not, that's how we tend to think about it. It's always like, well, we hold each other accountable so that we can punish each other when we fail. No! We, <laughs> we hold each other accountable so that we can be better. <laughs> So that we can be better is because of it. We need that camaraderie. We need that, that real sense of accountability that I'm accountable to another person. 
And if you're not really believing what I'm talking about in terms of celibacy, being this, then the temptation is that the priesthood is really about the public image of it. And man, it's easy to get sucked into that. Everybody's telling you your homilies are great. Everybody is, wants to invite you out for dinner. Everybody wants to take care of the needs that you have. You don't really have to pay for anything. And it becomes very easy then to go from a bridegroom spousal mentality to a perpetual bachelorhood. And that's not the type of priest that we need. We don't need men who are there just because it makes them feel good or that it strokes their ego or that they're happy because of all the, the fringe benefits that they get. That's not at all what we need. Especially in this day and age. We don't need that. So we don't want bachelor priests. So you have to set up safeguards now. You have to set up accountability and friendships that are going to be lasting now. You got to trust one another. Listen, I'm going to say this. I really need to just harp on this. This gossip nonsense in the seminary needs to freaking stop. It needs to stop. It needs to stop. At the end of the day, you need to trust one another. You have to. Because even if just a quarter of you in this room become priests, then you need each other because you're the only ones who are really going to understand what it meant to go through formation right now and what it means to then be a priest later. I don't know what it's like to be a priest. I'm not a priest. But you need priests who can support your priesthood. And you can begin forming those relationships now. And this gossip and all this other stuff that, that tears communities apart, if you think it's not there in your presbyterate, it's there in the presbyterate. And it tears presbyterates apart. And they don't trust one another. And what a shame to the people of God when we don't have priests that freaking trust one another. We got to get this right now, gentlemen. I'm serious. Because we need it. I need it. I need holy priests. And I don't want a priest who pretends that he can kind of do it on his own. I don't want that because that doesn't work out. That's arrogance. And he's going to fall. And when he falls, people are going to get hurt. And I don't want that for him either and for his sanctification. We have to trust one another. The world wants to tear the church apart. And we are doing a pretty darn good job doing it ourselves. And we have to turn away from that and really learn what it means to be brothers. You cannot live this life alone. The demands are too much for any single person to do it on their own. Everything we just talked about is absolutely heroic and beautiful and good. Yes, but don't be an idiot. You cannot do this on your own. You need one another. Please, gentlemen, learn how to trust one another. And really form true bonds of friendship and fraternity now that hopefully will bless you for the rest of your lives. What we don't need also is priests who are unchaste. See, what celibacy is not, I'm going to say this right now, the discernment, the call to celibacy is, is not, I can't get a date, so might as well be a priest. 
cool. Way to make the priesthood the rebound, right? You know, that's <laughs> the, re the rebound girl. That's what it just became. Or even worse than that is I am not good at anything else in life, and so it better work out now. This is the one thing that has to make sense, and it has to be it. Too much pressure that you're putting on yourself. So with the first one, you think you can't get a date now, wait till you're preaching bingo homilies. Wait till you're 10 years older than the girls that you're, uh, that you're ministering to. They will be attracted to you. It will happen. It will happen. You think you can't, you think you can't imagine that now? It will happen. And then what are you going to do? What does the celibacy fall upon? What does the, the charism fall upon? Is it just that I've been abstinent because I haven't had the opportunity or I haven't really had the, 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 the interest because no one's really been interested in me? But now that somebody's interested in me, am I still able to live out this virtue and this practice? Can the charism still live on that? I hope the answer is yes. I really do. Because when a man, when a priest then has sex with a woman, we'll just leave it at that, it's always abusive. Always. I don't care if she's your age. I don't care if you two like each other. It's always abusive. Why? Because you're what? What's the word that's going to be before your name in a few years? Say it for me. Father. Your father. To her. To the church. And a father never does that to her bride. To her daughter, I should say. Always. So you got to get this stuff figured out. Got to be honest, <laughs> you know, and when that day comes, because it will come, you got to make sure you got other people that you could talk to. And you're like, ooh, this girl. Oh, no, but man, brothers. Hey, guys, dude, this girl, man, she just, oh, <laughs> her hair. Every time she talks, <laughs> God have mercy. She just looks so good. Thank you, Jesus. Go. You connect and you bring that to, to, to good community who's not going to judge you, who's not going to write you up to the priest, you know, to the bishop, excuse me, and say, oh, you know, father so-and-so, whatever. Now, who actually has your back and cares about you and loves you enough to walk you through that trial. That's what you want. Because we don't want unchaste priests. We don't want bachelor priests. We don't want any of that nonsense. And what we definitely, definitely, definitely don't want any more of is abusive priests. Done. We're done. We're done. We're done. We're done with that. We're done with that. We're done with that. We don't need that. We don't want that. We, we don't, no, none of it, period. We're done with that. And we also don't need priests who are power hungry. It's there, guys. It's all, it's all temptations. I get it. It becomes easy. So saying earlier, but I'm going to say it again. It becomes easy to measure the quality of your priesthood by how big your parish is. It's not measuring anatomy. <laughs> it's not a pissing contest. That's not what the priesthood is. Mine's bigger than yours. It's not what this is about. <laughs> not even close. It's not about how high you climb the ranks of the church, how many years you spend in Rome. It's none of that. And if that's what it is for you, my apologies to burst your bubble. I'm doing it right now. Because that's not what it's about. If that's what it's about for you, then I'm sorry. Please discern something else. Because we don't need that in the church anymore. 
We need real witnesses. You know what happens when the church is in scandal? It calls to question the whole enterprise. That's what it does. When the highest ranking Vatican officials are doing shenanigans and cardinals are being accused of things that are just atrocious, what it does to the average layperson is ask a very fundamental question. And the question is, does this thing work? Does, is salvation real? Is the grace of the church actually going to do anything? Because if that guy who has professed to live his whole life pursuing it isn't living it and it didn't do anything for him, what's it supposed to do for me? That's why scandal is the ripple effects of it. We don't even know because it causes confusion in the hearts and the consciences of people. And it ruptures trust in our ability to actually lay our minds and our hearts to, to, to rest in the hands of the, of the priest who is supposed to be a model of Jesus Christ. And we have work to do to reestablish trust. We do. And so we need, I need, you guys to be on board with the supreme call that God has for you. And that you desire to live your celibate, chaste, spousal, eschatological, holy love in a way that will convict the world back to Christ. And will remind all of us that yes, this thing is real. Why? Because I'm a witness of it. Because I've been transformed. Because the old wineskins have died within me and I have the new wineskins. Because my stony heart has turned into a heart of flesh. Because I can offer that to you, brothers and sisters. That's the witness. That is what you offer. That is what you lead people to. And it starts now. It starts now. Let's get serious about it. Let's love one another. Let's be received in love. Let's learn what it means to be sons. Let's learn what it means to be brothers. Let's learn what it means to give in husband love, in fatherly love. And to do it in a way, man, in a way that will convict the world and cause real conversion, a real turnaround from the lies and deceits and the messages of the world to turn around to say, God is good. God is real, and God is still operating within us today. In the celibate love, I reiterate this, manifests that in a very singular way. We need to get this right. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Father in heaven, man, thank you, Jesus. God, thank you for the conviction um, to, to pursue holiness. Thank you, God, for the real sacrifice that you call us to, to not be afraid of those sacrifices. Lord, but to do the honest work of discernment within our hearts, I just want to continue to pray for each of these men. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for them. 
Guide them. Guide them, Lord, in their experiences to be humble before you, to understand what it is you are calling them to do, to reveal truly, Lord, the the pure, holy, chaste desires inside of them, and that that purity may guide them towards their vocation. And Lord, once they have clarity in terms of the direction that you're calling them, I pray, God, that you may give them courage to actually pursue that with with fortitude, with, with vigor, with energy, with zeal, with passion. Thank you, God, for the gift of the priesthood. Thank you, God, for the, the, the awesome responsibility that falls on the shoulders of our priests. Thank you, God, for the priesthood here in this room. Bless them in, in their witness. Bless them in their, in their vocation. Bless them, Lord, in their life of service. Thank you, God, for the gift of my wife. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of, of the marriage you've called me to live. Praise you, God, for the gift of my children. Thank you, God, for your goodness. And just joy and happiness, Lord, may continue to, to pierce our hearts so that we can show others, Lord, truly what it means to love and to love with happiness and joy and goodness. So, Jesus, we just offer all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this important episode. Again, thanks to the men at Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary for their openness to receive my words. Please pray for our church. God will bring healing that is needed. Renewal is coming. I know it is. And we have to pray for one another that we can support one another in our respective vocations. Because if we all are doing our job and all of us are pursuing holiness in our life, that is how we will get through this, people. Please love Jesus, pursue Jesus, whatever your state of life is. Follow him with reckless abandonments and love him dearly and sincerely. That's the witness that we need in this day and age. We need to love Jesus and love Jesus alone. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please find me on Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mario Sacasa. If you're looking for more great information related to discernment, whether it's to the celibate life or to married life, I look forward to dialoguing with you on those platforms. Be good and God bless guys. Mm -hmm.